Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. I've been thinking a lot about how badly null is explained in programming. And, and for me too, it's like only recently have I really started looking at that going, oh, that means this. Because I've always, I came from C and assembly and C++. And initially it was just either uninitialized or set to zero or whatever. And, and it was just like, yeah, don't do that. Don't, don't use that. Yeah. And not like what Bill encounters a lot is people not paying attention and ending up with null pointer exceptions in Java. Yeah. And when you really start looking at it, you're going, well, what are you trying to convey yeah. with this null? And you realize, and then, but it wasn't until I started looking at the optionals and ethers and all, you know, all the, the monadic things where they're going, we have more information to convey here than just the result. Yeah. And then you start, and then you look at the way Kotlin does it, and it, it seems a little strange at first because they do all this trouble to get rid of the nulls that they get from Java, and yet their model for results is result or null. Yeah. And going, well, what's up with that? And it's like, well, that is kind of pseudo-monadic way of doing it. Yeah, it's definitely the ADT, the algebraic data type for modeling if something can has a value or doesn't, is you join together the two types with a, it would be a or mm -hmm. expression in algebraic data types. So this is a dog or a nothing. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the Zio stuff says, well, as long as we're sending this package along, maybe we want to add some other things that everybody needs to have. And it's like when you start thinking of it in terms of these packages that are being transferred from one function to another, to me, it starts to make sense. The chainability is yes is critical to the whole thing That's because the essence if of you it. if if you only ever call one thing, none mm -hmm. of this really matters. Like nope, nope. it's all about composition. <laughs> yeah. It's like either you're either you're doing these chains or you're composing a new function by putting these other things in and you yeah. don't want to have to insert after every single call. You don't want to have to insert did this succeed or and and then once you realize that that's a that's an option to have this package of information that flows, yeah. then you can say, oh, well, maybe I want something from the environment or something for the user interface that I'm talking to, or I think Bill's using time that way. Yeah. And now it starts to make sense. Yeah. And I think that the monadic idea is just, I mean, th th that part is just, okay, if you want to do this, can we have math that shows us what is the right package to okay. ship between these two things. So this is just my thinking right yeah. now. I don't know yeah. if that's right. Yeah. I mean, what, what are the expectations that this thing conveys? Right. Exactly. And, and what the, you know, the, the problem that happens is people get fascinated with that and they say, that's the essence of it. And that's not, it's the composability chainability thing. That is yep. the essence of why we're doing this at all. And I couldn't understand it because I didn't know what the motivation was. Right. What's I just saw a tweet uh, 
this week that showed a block of code that was like a block of code that you would see in so many books and samples. It was like, okay, I'm going to talk to the database. I'm going to get a person. And then I'm going to use that person to look up some other piece of data about them. And the interesting thing about that example and what was pointed out was that that code will never be production quality code because it doesn't address the potential for failure. It doesn't address the potential that the person couldn't be found. It didn't address the uh, what happens uh, if the network is unreliable and I need to do a retry. It doesn't address dependency injections, the ability to like change change how I do that lookup based on my environment. Testability. Testability. And so it was really an interesting example of why these, why our programming languages are adding features or changing the way that we do things so that we can have the conciseness of that code, but also deal with the, the, the issues with, with actually putting that kind of code into production. Cause you, yeah. And this is the way we teach programming. We teach happy path programming yeah. and that's the way I learned it. And I still remember like my encountering a C library that says, so you have to allocate storage, pass the storage in, and then use the result and then release the storage. And I was like, what, why isn't it doing it for me? Well, yeah. I mean, I still want it to do everything for me, but it, you know, I hadn't seen any of that. It was always just, you do this and it happens right. And you get a whole nothing bunch could of, ever go wrong. Nothing could ever go wrong. And so you get a whole bunch of people coming out of, of school. I mean, they've uh, only been taught happy path programming, happy path programming. And cause I know that's, this is one of the things that um, I know in particular, Cody has been really focusing on cause you know, he's only been out of school for a couple of years and it, and it's like testing. I want to know more about testing because I don't trust this code, which is yeah. great. I'm, I'm yeah. you know, I'm so glad he has that attitude. Yeah. Um, but he's had to learn, he's had to go through the path of learning testing himself yeah. And it's so, that seems so fundamental that, and I think they had to teach themselves uh, Git as well. Huh. You know, wow. just all of these things, which are so, we use them all the time, but I understand why you wouldn't teach them in a theoretical computer science program. But yeah, uh, yeah. I yeah, I think the, part of the path that we're on with programming languages is to make it more explicit, the expectations that we can have when we call something. But the trade-off to that is that it can get really challenging when there's so much, when so much explicit information is conveyed. And so I think what we're discovering is ways to not make it so hard to deal with the explicitness that's being conveyed through those function calls. So I think the, the Kotlin null syntax is a great example of that. It's like, okay, we know that we need to convey nullability in the type system. And we've discovered that ADTs are a great way to model that. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, at least my view of it is that there's two different things. There's handling nulls so that they don't happen. And then there's using null as the failure return type. 
but because you have that null handling, the compiler forces you see, that's the thing. Cause when you get back an either or whatever, you don't have to, um, I mean, you don't have to check the failure value. You can just pretend that it's okay. Yeah. You can just do that. You can do that with, with Kotlin too. It just, it, it feels dirty. And I think that's part of with, with air handling, mm -hmm. it's how dirty does it feel to ignore the possible air condition? And with Scala and Monads, it feels really dirty. Like I, I feel like I need to take a shower if I call dot get on something that could fail, which is basically just saying, ignore the failure. Mm -hmm. um, and in Kotlin, you have to say, I mean, you have to get like really explicit about it. So you have to go bang, 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 bang. Yeah. I'm, I, and, and, you know, that's glaring at you. Yeah. It's like, uh, yes, I, so I th I'm being arrogant a... here and thinking that, no, it'll never fail. And I think that's part of the, the counteracting the happy path programming is to say, this feels really dirty to ignore this error. And we're going to make you do something that should jump out in a code review and say, this is really bad. And you can easily grep for it. You yeah, know, you go, right. huh, we've got some null pointers. Let's look for the ignore the null operators. Well, I bet there's a compiler flag or a build plugin that would say, don't let this code compile if if a bang bang is, is put in there. Mm. Scala has some modes, but you can say uh, all warnings are failures. Mm -hmm. And I think Kotlin has the same thing. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. um, so a warning would be, Hey, you called dot get on this thing, or you did bang, bang. And all of a sudden you can turn that into a compiler mm -hmm. with a, with a compile flag. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, uh, we, we are culturally shifting from happy path programming, but I wonder if universities are shifting and that's maybe where They've always a lot been of slower. change needs to happen. Yeah. It's like our programming languages are certainly shifting. I mean, even go like it made it explicit that every function can return uh, can return an a error, right? It's like the tuple tuple return type. Well, it's that's the style, but it's oh, not enforced. It, oh, okay. So, so that the idea is that you return effectively in either. And except for they use like tuple syntax for it, which is super weird, but. Yeah, because they because they have d support for tuples built in. Yeah. Well, I mean, like Python does. Yeah. yeah. So, but what was weird about that in Go is that a, a tuple is, is should be a um, an and ADT, right? Like a um, conveying that two values can can fill that space. In in the case of a, a, a that's what you want two value you tuple. Mean. That's I think what Go's kind of style was was yes was, and then you have to check. Like, did you return the value or did you return the thing? Whereas really an or ADT is, is much better fits mm -hmm. what they're trying to convey because no, it's either, it's either a value or it's an error. We should probably remind people because you're, you're throwing around the term ADT. Uh, algebraic data type. Right. So the, but what does it look like? So there are, there is the, or, and there's the, and the, or is, uh, a dog or a bird, uh, or a dog or a nothing in the case of something knowable. Mm -hmm. And so you the type system conveys that you can either have a dog 
or a bird. You can't have both. And you don't have to wrap those up into an object or does that automatically create the object that comes back? You, you, um, so, the, so people have usually seen these uh, or something very similar to these with enums. So the way that you do it is if, if you, uh, if you're, if you've said that my return type is a dog or a bird, then you return either a dog or a bird. And so and it comes back as a dog type or, or a bird type, or does it come back as a box containing a dog or a bird? It comes back as a wrapper that okay. it, the, the type, the actual type would be dog or bird. Right. So, so I think the way that most compilers do ADTs is they actually generate types that that are the ADT, the the aggregate type. So when the, you say this type. is a dog or bird, it goes, okay, I got this. I'll make this little package that can contain a dog or bird. And so then, usually, pattern matching is the way that you okay. then deal with the what it can, what you actually got. And so, so it eliminates the need for an either or a maybe or whatever. An either is a um, is a way to do uh, an either in Scala or other languages have either's as, as well is a way to do a or type with a with a wrapper so that so you're you are not sure. having the compiler give you a type that is the ADT you are explicitly defining you're creating it. it but if if it's supporting this then it just does that for you and makes it a little more seamless yeah right yeah because I I always felt awkward using that the you know, the lefts and the rights and everything I'm going, that doesn't mean anything. Right. And I, and I haven't yeah. liked that. Where is it this? Well, and, and also, um, your pattern was, matching is much cleaner because you don't yeah. have to then pull things out of the wrapper. Your pattern matching can just say case dog do this. Yeah. Right. And, and it knows how the compiler knows how to take that or type that it created for you and unpack in the it. pattern. Yeah. And unpack it. Right. Right. Yeah. That just seems that, that would have, been a much easier thing for me to absorb rather than trying to figure out the the ethers and the you know the so there's also the and mm -hmm. adt which is let's say that i have a type where i need a dog and a dog house uh and i want those in a in a single type so the the way that we see these is through uh data classes case classes in scala um yeah, other languages have other ways. Rec new record types in Java are essentially the way to model an and type. And what that's saying is that I have a type that holds a dog and a dog house. And we would call that, I don't know, yard with dog or something like that. And so we would give it a name and then we'd be able to extract the individual pieces out. As, as so it's almost like just building the class for you that we would normally do by hand. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, but the, but if you have a language that has an and ADT, then you don't need to explicitly define the, the like case class or data class. You sure. just say dog and dog house, mm -hmm. you know, with and, and, or whatever, or single and, I can't remember what Scala 3 does it. Um, but, and then it generates the type that represents that like it does in the case of, or mm. that... Tup tuples are, uh, are, are essentially are exactly this tuple tuples are are ADT and ADTs mm. with it because they're and they don't have a name mm -hmm. but the, it's there is a type that you get that represents the so, it's stuff a data structure but it just just it's unnamed it's like yeah. a, 
the lambda equivalent of a data structure or something. That's like right. That. Yeah. Yeah. That one doesn't, I mean, I guess, cause I'm so used to making my own named classes, that one doesn't seem as essential to me as the, as the or. Yeah. Um, cause it seems to me like the or solves that problem of the ugly object coming out that I have to then unpack. So the next level of air handling in the back to like nullability is let's say you have a function that returns a dog or nothing saying mm -hmm. that that maybe maybe you couldn't find the dog maybe. sure <laughs> and so so you get you get the dog's nothing escaped it's escaped yep and mm -hmm. so so you get nothing but what if you want to add more information or more possible error handling scenarios into that so let's say that that uh it could be nothing or it could be uh service was unavailable Mm -hmm. And you want to you want to convey that information in the type system so that then the caller can decide what to do in that in that case. Not just mm -hmm. right because because nothing could be. I couldn't find Any. it. I tried and I couldn't find it. The network. I down. tried and I failed to actually try. Uh, or it's not whatever. in the dictionary. The network's down. Something's gone. Yeah, it's like well, and this. So I was just describing this in the uh, very introductory chapter in, in Atomic Scholar. I, I, I ambitiously decided to to say, here's one of the great features about the language is that it's more than just like when. How do you deal with no result? And and part of the problem is that for efficiency's sake, we go, oh, well, I have an int and to show no result, C did this, you know, I'll put a minus one in or, you know, they tried all these different things. That. Yeah. And it's like, and that was for efficiency's sake, because they were going, well, we don't want to use up extra storage. And what we actually do is, yes, we do want to have that extra information yeah. along with us so that we can say, why? Do you have no value, right? You know, because I need to. Maybe I need to do something based on that. Yeah. Exactly. So it's a lot more than just. I mean, and that's where I guess just null is better. I mean, null at least tells you that no value has come back, and it's not just some random minus one or whatever <laughs> value. It's not just some unlikely value that could actually happen. Yeah. Um, but it's still not enough information in my opinion to be able to actually you know right. deal with the error it's yep. it's not that different from throwing an exception i mean the exception can sometimes carry more information but still yeah yeah so taking adts even further you can uh this is kind of outside of the realm of the way that kotlin does it with nullability but using adts you can have a function that returns a dog or a and then in parentheses so we're going to group these this next block together so or a nothing or uh, a nothing or a uh so you could even and these things together yeah, so, a dog or a nothing and the reason for nothing. Right. Or, uh, or you could do it and say a nothing or a network error. And so, so then you can start to compose together through ands and ors mm -hmm. and through grouping of, of mm -hmm. things, which we're all familiar with from algebra, uh, grouping these things together to define types that actually semantically convey the, the reality of what happened when you called this thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, which is ultimately what we need in order to be able to 
chain these operations together. Yeah. So. Hmm. On the subject of algebra, I saw this uh, great video on Twitter where uh, this girl was asking, why was algebra invented? What problem were they trying to solve when they invented algebra? I thought it was fascinating. Um, there was a few, most people are just saying that it was a really good question um, because I guess she got bagged on for, for uh, people thought it was a stupid question, but actually it was a really smart no, question. That's, that's, a, yeah. that's an excellent question because, well, and it's the kind of question, because I was just thinking about this in terms of, you know, our monad description where people go to, it's a monoid in the category of endofunctors. And it's like, doesn't describe it why. doesn't. And, and when you present that to somebody who's like, just trying to program, they're going, why are you telling me math? Yeah. And when you're in math class and those obnoxious people would raise their hands and go, how do I use this in real life? And it would bug me. And now I go, they were asking a good question. That is because, you know, just saying learn math, it's, it's like in Rick and Morty, you know, he, he keeps, the math teacher keeps saying math is so important. It, it controls everything in life. And, you know, they're not connecting with that. And yeah. it's like, you really do. And it's the same with explaining uh, uh, monads. If you explain it from the mathematical end, nobody's going to get it. But right. if you say, hey, we want to chain functions together. Yeah. or compose them or, you know, we want to, we want to do this thing and not have to deal with then. Uh, that's when it first started making sense to me is when I could see it that way. And so asking, I, I mean, now I want to know uh, who, who, who said, Hey, we should have algebra <laughs> or just the idea. I mean, it's almost like what I was musing about earlier with, um, with zeros. It's like you have some things and now you have nothing. Right. Nothing of what, you know, <laughs> uh, you could have nothing of anything, whereas you can only have five chickens or, you know, right. and, and, and coming up with zeros and ones and how they're different from all the other numbers. Yeah. When you really start thinking about that, it sort of blows your mind. And it's the same thing. I mean, my guess would be somebody said, boy, it sure would be helpful, convenient or whatever. If we could have something rather than a number, we could say placeholder for number. Right. And so, no, I think it's, I mean, this girl should probably be a mathematician. Yeah. Cause she asked that question. She also asked something along the lines of is math real? Like, like, uh, did see, we discover she's this thing? She's a mathematician. She yeah. should, she should definitely study math. Did yeah. we actually discover this thing that existed or did we just create a concept to help us explain something that is deeper and unexplainable. And I, and, and I think the answer is yes to both of those, because there is pure math and applied math. And when I was in physics, I would, and, and in engineering, I was studying applied math. And so we were just looking at, you know, moving things around and, and seeing if we could, I didn't understand this at the time, but seeing if we could get the equation to represent what was going on in the real world. And you didn't care whether, you know, it was math, you know, it had to work mathematically, but it wasn't like deriving a theorem from first principles. It was just going, well, the ball's moving this way. And so based on our experience, we'll say that it has a, you know, partial derivative of this and that. 
I didn't know what was going on at the time, but they were just trying to piece these things together. Now we would use machine learning. Right. We would go, let's, let's look at all this data for all these balls and then come up with this model. You know, yeah. this model. And that's all we were doing. Yeah. But both of those things are super important. Yeah. You know? So, so I think to her question in regards to algebraic data types is why algebraic data types, like why, why do we have them? And for me, I think what it comes down to is that we, we, most of us understand at least a little bit of algebra. We understand that uh, plus is commutative, right? Is that the one where you can flip it? A plus B is B plus A, B plus right? A, yeah. And so we we understand we understand these basic algebraic laws because around multiplication and addition because we were taught those in I don't know what grade was that fifth grade sixth Depends. seventh grade anywhere somewhere around there and so so even though I can't remember the laws and can't remember the names and what they actually mean off the top of my head. I've internalized those rules. And so when I encounter algebraic data types in a program, it makes sense with the expectations that I can place on, on those types. Uh, I, I, I know that if I have dog or bird, a dog or bird type, it's the same thing as a bird or dog type. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. The, actually the, the thing that really hooked me, uh, I think Bill explained it because I wasn't sure what, when he was talking about algebraic data types, he was saying, suppose you pass it in as an argument. So you could have a dog or a bird or a football. And it says, then in your, you know, pattern match, it's explicit. It's like, um, it's like a, a, not a final um, class. What, what a oh, closed, a sealed, sealed class yeah. in, in Kotlin. And so then you Those don't, are the only things that it could possibly be. So there, and there's no else. And if you change the signature of your function, yeah. the compiler says, oh, you're missing one here. That's right. And it's like, oh, well, that's nice. That would be a little bit better than what we have. But then yeah. these other things that you're describing make it even more compelling. Yeah. So, yeah. So and are we, there any other languages than Scala 3 that has those? Like built in. Um, there are, uh, I'm sure there, I'm sure like mathematical languages have an Idris or whatever probably has it. Um, so, uh, cock is another one that I think has, has led a lot of the research in these areas. Um, so I don't know a whole lot about them, but, but I think we see, I think we see them in a lot of languages, but they haven't necessarily been called algebraic data types. Like we've seen tuples in languages for a long time, but but people haven't referred to that as, as an ADT. Yeah. And it allows you calling it an ADT allows you, I think, to think about it a little differently. Cause I mean, Python has, has had tuples forever, right? but I've just thought, well, if you want to return more than one type, you use a tuple and unpack it on the other end. If it gets too unwieldy, you turn it into a class. Yeah. Yep. But just you give it a name. <laughs> you give it a name. It's just very, in fact, there, there, they added a feature called name tuple. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so you shouldn't actually... that just be a class though? Like maybe syntactic. Well, or... it, it was added a long time after tuples were in. Yeah. So apparently there was a perceived need for it. Yeah. Um, 
and and people are i think pretty enthusiastic about it i've not really used them very much but maybe yeah. maybe i'll internalize it and start using them yeah but yeah i, I typically prefer a named i mean just a, a class because but anyway yeah. people yeah. people find value in it so yeah i there are times when I'm prototyping something and I don't know what the name should be where I use a tuple. Mm -hmm. And then after I've explored the domain sufficiently and have arrived at mm -hmm. what the thing I know is, what this is. Yeah. yeah, then mm -hmm. I can give it a name. Name it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's nice. But sometimes the name can get in the way. Like, because sometimes the name that you would come up with would be like dog and bird and football would be the name of the type. And it's like, eh, that's, that's not very helpful. Yeah. It's not very helpful. Yeah. Well, and I think being able to do it, you know, with the, you, you know, the monadic approach, I, I much like, much prefer the ADT because I don't have that name in the way. I know that I'm either getting something or I'm getting error information or, you know, it's, it, it's, yeah, it declutters it. Yeah. yeah. So taking this just a little bit further, which is something I'm learning about and not an expert on, but I find fascinating is that there are, uh, let's say, a dozen kind of usual algebraic laws like commutativity, associativity, uh, reflexivity. <laughs> um, is that one of them? I don't so know. There's, there's a bunch. Yeah. But what's interesting is that that the the rules can get applied in in different ways there's a there's a matrix of how these these algebraic rules can get applied and so we can actually give names to different ways that different rules get applied together and so there's i, I don't know all of them but there's like lattices and uh, mo um, monoids and uh, and then monads. And so these there's all these names for just different structures of these laws together. And so so I think that right now ADTs are coming up in, in a lot of programming languages. And what we may see over time is more of these aggregations of algebraic laws and the names for them percolating into programming in other ways as well. Hmm. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But it is where it's hard is that in seventh grade algebra or whatever, I learned addition and multiplication, the, the algebraic laws of addition and multiplication. I didn't learn the algebraic laws of monads. <laughs> Right. And it was I mean, also, I learned the laws. I didn't learn the term. <laughs> it was also hard to, uh, I could just plow through and do those things, but I realized now that if I'd had some kind of motivation behind it, it would have just completely changed my perspective. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I just, it just seems like there was a lot of wasted time there, which could have been put to better use, but yeah. yeah. That's a different. So uh, let's see. We got part way through, or we got mo a lot of the way through, discussing Kotlin features. Uh, Kotlin one point four was released last week too. It was so that last was week. Exciting. I I switched some apps over to it, and everything just worked, which was awesome. Yeah. But I reading the release announcement, 
there wasn't like a, a ton of programming model changes. Mm -mm. It was a lot of, it seemed like a lot of internal stuff to me. There was a lot of internal stuff. Yeah. They've, um, they've, they've, and routines I think and they, fiber, like there was internal changes to yeah. that, but yeah, I mean, uh, the, the single abstract method stuff, oh, that's right. Which, which is an optimization for JVM bytecode applications. No, it's it's or? a it's a programming thing. So okay. you're able to say if you have a um, an interface that has a single um, member function in it, because that's what we call them in Kotlin, um, and you put fun in front of, so it says fun interface, and then the compiler uh, will make sure that you only have one. Oh, cool. Uh, and then you function. can, you can use it as a method reference. So, so just like in Java, like um, I think it, Java is modeled after Java's. Yeah, uh, it's and the Java single. so if I want to implement that interface, I can just, for example, I can just um, like use a Lambda right. and the Lambda's single function will fit that. And I don't have to do all the rest of the stuff. Yeah. And I don't you know, say you have to have a name. So I can say return interface name and then give it a lambda yeah and and so from a, a succinctness standpoint it's really nice and i went through the book and uh, found all the examples that i could and and either just did them as sam things or did them both ways and said here's the old way here's yeah. how you can do it with the sam so nice yeah so and, have you updated the book to 1.4 oh yeah i mean oh, we nice. were working with uh early versions of okay. 1.4 all along um but there wasn't any you know it, it was just additive stuff yeah but um, yeah and i've kept it up to date with the latest gradle the all yeah. the latest versions that have come out so it's yeah it's it's basically 1.4 compatible and yesterday i finished the text of the book we still have wow. exercises too That's i mean the exercises and solutions are all done but they need to be converted into this form so that you can do the exercises inside of intelligent idea and it gives you hints and answers and things um, so atomiccotlin.com people can atomiccotlin.com is they can go there and, and it has all the instructions That's and awesome the book is through um it's being well there's a system that JetBrains, I think, I don't know if they own the company outright or they're just supporting it. Um, and then there's um, LeanPub, which is uh, has, has been very useful. Nice. And so that's how you get the book. And then the print book will be, I mean, I mean, it's ready. It's just, you know, we have the cover. There's needs to be some adjustments with the spine and things like that. And, yeah. But um, yeah, I think it'll be remarkably soon that the print book will also be available and it should be assuming the Ingram spark thing goes well, it'll show up everywhere. Yeah. It'll be available everywhere. So anyway, yeah, huh. we'll, we'll see, you know, you never know about these things, but, uh, but it's been, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Excited. It, is. it is. And I'm very pleased with it. It's yeah. um, I, I feel like it, it may be the best thing that I've done, but yeah. I don't know. So, yeah, I, I'm excited to go through it. Yeah. I think yeah. I, I read through some very early um, versions of it. Probably if it was a while back, there's, there's a lot of rewriting. There's some things I need to learn. Like what's the buy thing. So in Kotlin, you can say um, foo buy 
lazy or foo by some other identifier or something? That is um, delegation. Okay. So you can say, I want to implement this interface using that object. Okay. And it enables things like lazy or late initialization. Mm -hmm. So lazy initialization allows you to have a non-null reference. So it's it still has that non-nullability benefit that you have, yeah. but it doesn't get initialized until the first time you use it. Right. And then uh, late initialization is... So is lazy actually then a keyword in Kotlin or... Because I've seen by and then other identifiers yes. as well. Yeah, yeah. It's not it, by is not just lazy. It's it's um, it's delegation in general. So another thing that you can do with delegation, which is really nice because it's kind of halfway between inheritance and composition. Uh -huh. So um, delegation would allow you to say, "All right, I want to create this object from that other object, but I don't want to inherit from it." Um, I want, you know, maybe I'm already inheriting from something else and we can't do multiple yeah. inheritance. Yeah, yeah. You can do multiple delegation and you can still upcast to the multiple delegates. Yeah. So you get, which is really what multiple inheritance is for is yeah. if you want to upcast to more than one base type. Yeah. So you get that with delegation. But what's really nice is you can say, okay, I've got this thing. I've got a couple of methods and I want the whole kit and caboodle from this other object, but I want it to be exposed as my interface, yeah. not just a member object that I then have to, you know, write all the functions to call huh. those things to delegate. So it just does that in one. Yeah, it's very powerful. Huh. Scott Myers first explained it to huh. me and he really thought it was a, a powerful concept and it is, yeah. it's very powerful. And it's not so it's just, it's, it's kind of another way to do polymorphism. Well, yeah, I guess, cause you can upcast. So, um, it's more, I mean, I think of it more as in a, a way to assemble objects with less code because I mean, and maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe it should be thought of as another way to do polymorphism. But my first impression was, oh, I want maybe a couple of objects in my other thing, and I want their interfaces to be exposed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. together. Yeah, and I don't want to have to write all those, you know, functions that are simply saying, "Okay, call this, call this, call yeah. this," and it does it for you. So, huh. um, but then it also enables things like the uh, lazy and late initialization stuff. I wonder if it's a, I'm back to ADTs. I wonder if it's also another way to create a product type. Huh. Maybe if it's a special syntax for generating product types. Uh, yeah, I guess the trick would be to see, to figure out what you can do with delegation and what you can do with ADTs and see yeah. how much they intersect. Yeah. If they do intersect. Yeah. Oh, we need a mathematician to do that. Yeah. Yeah. We do. yeah. So, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a very powerful thing and we have, multiple atoms in the book on on delegation on delegation because because huh. it's used i mean there's you know basic delegation and then there there it's used in a number of different other ways huh. so Interesting. Um, yeah it is it is but um um yeah very powerful syntax um 
So, yeah, one of the things that I don't think we emphasized a lot when we've talked about it before is just the syntax simplicity and clarity in the last code. And um, like I've forgotten it now because I'm used to using both Python and Kotlin. But then when I come across, well, my friend Luciano, who wrote Fluent Python, he's quoted me as coming up with this term semicolon languages, which is to me a language where the designers felt like the compiler writer was more important than the programmer. Uh, that's pretty harsh, I know, yeah. but it's it's kind of what I mean. I mean, and you know, I was just telling you about this one language designer who wants to keep semicolons in. And when I objected to it, he says, well, you still put periods at the end of sentences, which I just, I don't know what to do with that. But to me, if I see semicolons in a language, I'm going, oh, that's what you think of me right? as a programmer. You yeah. think, you think, oh, I serve you. Yeah. I serve you so that you don't have to figure out how to find the end of a, an expression. Right. And um, so, I mean, not having semicolons, it's, it just seems so archaic to me now. Yeah. And, and what didn't, see, now I've forgotten, did, um, does Scala get rid of semicolons? They're optional. So. They're optional. Okay, well, that's fine. I mean, they're optional in Kotlin, too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so they, they led the way with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, Python did, too. Yeah. But, um, and, well, and then comparing it to Java, being able to have top-level functions rather than forcing everything to be a class, that was just, uh, yeah. that was just, uh, well, they were trying to make it small talk, so. Yeah. And, you know, that, yeah, what a, I had this interesting thing mm -hmm. recently where I, um, started applying KT lint, which is the Kotlin linting tool. I did not know about that. Uh, uh, to some projects and mm -hmm. it out of the box, it was pretty strict on, uh, ordering of imports, which is interesting because KT lint had different rules than IntelliJ. So, um, but it would check the file name against the class name and stuff like that. Um, there was, there, there was rules to me that seemed like, okay, if I'm working in a team and I want all the code to be structured the same and look the same, like these are useful rules, but then there was rules that were, oh yeah, like this should just be a, every Kotlin programmer should, should abide by <laughs> these rules. And so, um, so yeah, it was, it was a interesting, useful experiment, uh, and, I did it in this case because the my pull request was being marked as failed because the the pull request was automatically having KT lint run, and so then I had to add KT lint and get it to work locally so that then I could get my pull request to get a thumbs up. So, hmm. well, it sounds. I mean, I like those things because I know we used to have arguments about code formatting and yeah. style and this and that. It would just go uh, on forever. And for me, apply, you... apply a formatting an automated formatting, uh, standardization and the argument because it's, there should never be any, there any formatting bike shedding review. Like no. I think I tweeted recently, something along the lines of if a code review involves discussion about formatting and code structure, it's a, huge it's a waste, waste of time. time. Exactly. Automate it. Exactly. Automate it's, a, it's like, you gotta be thinking of it in terms of, we have a team, everybody has to read the code. I'm sorry if this doesn't fit with your personal coding style, but that's not the most important thing. Yeah. And if you think it is, maybe you're not a good fit on this team. Or we, 
we've automated this. Yeah. So KTLint can also auto format sure. your code for you. So it's just like automate it so that, and yeah, if you, if you like formatting code a different way, like, sorry, like just. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's a communication. It's, I, I don't know. It's I like, know. I hate Go's formatting style. Hate it. But when I'm writing Go code, I abide by the Go formatting. Cause you're gonna, yeah. <laughs> Cause uh, I'm working on a team with people and, and tabs, I'm gonna, man. Why, oh why would you do that? It's just like, like they offend me. Um, to the point where in, in IntelliJ, I have tabs, I, tabs show up and spaces show up. And if I see that like arrow, like I, go, oh, oh, it's just this visceral reaction. So when, I'm, so when I'm working on Go code, I tell Angel, IntelliJ don't, to, to don't, don't, don't show, show me, me that. Just don't show it to me because it's going to annoy me. Exactly. Is, yeah. And, and when I don't see it, it's fine. Yeah, like, yeah, I exactly. get, get through coding just fine. I can, I could see that. I could see that. Um, yeah, there were a lot. I think there were a lot of things that Java imposed on us that uh, one of the things I love about Kotlin is that it releases that. Like, I mean, having to put everything in a class, having to put one class per file, you know, that tying the classes and the files yeah. together, and then that deep uh, <laughs> having your directory structure having the directory your... structure filled yeah. with empty directories yeah. just so that you could you know and i understand what they were doing they're going okay let's make the directories meaningful and all of this stuff will be meaningful but it was just i feel like it was somebody who didn't understand small talk well enough and and mm. didn't understand certainly didn't understand c plus plus well enough yeah to say that I think before tools were sophisticated, maybe there was some value to being able to know where a particular definition resided. Mm -hmm. But now with tools, you just control click on the thing and it takes you to it. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. Yeah. The, but you know, I, I mean to job. So the way I presented Java in the Kotlin book was I said it did two really important things for us. Um, and it was basically bringing these ideas into the mainstream that we previously thought were um, impractical, which is uh, garbage collection and virtual machines. Yeah. And before that, it's like, well, yeah, we knew that. I mean, uh, Python has garbage collection and it predates Java. Yeah. And there were some others, but they were like not real languages. They wouldn't run fast enough. They wouldn't be practical or whatever. And then virtual machines we saw in the UCSDP system. But again, that was like super slow. Yeah. And so people go, oh, no, those are impractical. And then Java comes along and it goes, well, both of these things we're showing you can use them. The rest of it was, eh, uh, you know, we're moving on from it, I we're think. We are moving to, on. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. And Java is continuing to evolve and getting some great features. Oh, it is. I mean, what Brian Getz is doing with Java is like mind blowing. I, I would have looked at it and said, this is hopeless. And he goes in and he like pulls these magic tricks out of his hat that yeah. are just like, that's why he's so brilliant. He is brilliant. Um, and as he, as I've heard him say, he has last mover advantage, which I just love. It's uh, their advantage is to let everyone try all sorts of stuff. And then once, once all the experiments have been done, then they can adopt what works. So. Well, that's basically what Kotlin did. 
because yeah. because virtually all of its features except for extension lambdas um huh. that's th that feature they invented but huh. every other feature they lifted from another language proved, proved after it had been else. proven not just that it works but that people got a lot of value from it which yeah. is what i really respect about that uh decision making process yeah. but, and like you know they put in things like ranges which are small but really nice yeah. you know just being able to say one dot dot five yeah. rather than you know range you know rather yeah. than calling a function it is nice eliminating the new keyword which yeah. was never necessary yeah. in in java it was like just a misunderstanding of of what c plus plus did yeah. c had to have it because you could either have things on the stack or on the heap and so to say it's on the heap we had to have new and we had to have delete uh, interesting but once you have a garbage collector you're creating everything on the heap anyway and so you don't need a new keyword yeah i mean if a few other things yeah scala 3 is getting rid of the new keyword they're or making it optional i should say yes yeah. right but, so that backwards back yeah but effectively getting rid of it yeah yeah, yeah which is which is which is really That's nice great. and that yeah and there's a bunch of other things that they did which initially they had like main was more like um i don't know i guess it, it was it was kind of like Java's, you know, you had you had extra things in main that you like the arguments to main you would never use, right? And they, uh, Katie Lent told me that uh, on my main function that I wasn't actually using the arguments. So. Oh, so you can take them out? Yeah. Okay. I was yeah. Like, oh, but I just thank you, Katie Lent. I love. I mean, it's. I find it so annoying. I mean, like Java's, you know, hello world in Java. You yeah. got a class, you got a system out print line, you got to have a public static void main, you have, you know. Yeah. You think about all the concepts you have to understand to like really understand hello world. And it's a dozen. It right? is. It's a lot. And in, and in Kotlin, what's, what's your minimum? Just fun main, open parenthesis, close parenthesis. Uh, open curly brace. Oh, open curly brace. And that's it. Right? Print, print line, hello world. Yeah. Yeah. And you can explain that's, it. Like, yeah. which, whereas in yeah. thinking in Java. So the concepts there that you have to understand are a function. Yeah. If you can understand, not even arguments, not even types. Like, you, there's no type. No. I mean, there there are types, but, but they're, they're not implied. They're all implied. Mm -hmm. Inferred. Implied, yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, so that's really nice. Yeah. You have one concept you have to understand for Hello World. Because when I wrote thinking in Java, my my rule was... I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the thing that so many people do go, well, don't worry about this code. We'll explain it later. I'm going, no, I'm not going to give you hello world that you don't understand all the pieces of. And it took a lot <laughs> of writing before I could do hello world in Java. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, things like that. Um, yeah. If you're trying to avoid forward references, in Java, it's like a dozen chapters before you can get to Hello World. Mm -hmm. yeah, it Scala, it's probably like six. Mm -hmm. yeah. Python, it's like none, right? None, because you don't even have to have main. Yeah. Yeah. You just say print Hello yeah. World. Yeah. The default is scripting, yeah. and then you can go yeah. from there, which is pretty brilliant when you think about it. Yeah. From a, from I think a with, with KTS, it's the same, right? The if Kotlin you do, scripting. Kotlin scripting. Yeah. I, I actually haven't done any Kotlin scripting. We you have in Gradle, right? 
So, so Gradle now. Well, we built Kotlin it DSL using. Uh, we built it using Groovy. Oh, the Groovy DSL. And yeah. so, um, I kind of haven't touched it because we have a, you know, all the everything's automated. Yeah. So I haven't. I kind of haven't touched it, but I I am thinking, boy, it, it, maybe in the second edition we'll yeah. we'll make it all because it seems like yes we should be using yeah. Kotlin scripting and for our Gradle things, but. I, Gradle, I, it's like, if it works, I don't want to touch it. Cause yeah. I, there's, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Gradle doesn't make sense to me. I, I, it doesn't make sense to me either. I've come to appreciate SBT a lot more because of Gradle, which is saying something. Yeah. And I don't even know how to ask questions about Gradle. And we know it's, the guy yeah, you know, I mean, we, we both know Hans. Yeah, could, but I, I think the know. challenge is that, like, like what we've found with uh, declarative DSLs is that there's always a life cycle that is behind that DSL, and in the case of Gradle, the life cycle of your build definition gets intertwined into the life cycle of the build in a way that is incomprehensible. To me. To me too. And so that's one of the things that purely declarative builds like Maven, it's nice because you don't have to think about how your your uh your state modifications when and how they get applied to the build tools state mm-hmm. management and life cycle. And I think that's been the hardest thing about Gradle is I just don't know how and when state changes are happening mm. between what I write and what the build tool is doing. So, anyway, well, at least you understand it well enough to even explain it that way. Cause I can't, I'm not, you know, I'm just looking at it going, okay, I need to put this in here and now it works. But if I put it in a slightly different way, it doesn't work. And, and, and I mean, I, used make for years and it's like make has got lots of limitations but it was super fast and it was like this depends on this and when the dependencies are out of date you do this you know it's like there's make for you in a sentence yeah and it's like i don't know how to describe gradle but yeah but it works I can use it. Yeah. You know, there are some it. very nice things about Gradle. Gradle's mm-hmm. caching is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, their dependency management stuff is really great. They like rewrote the whole Maven dependency management stuff and, it, and they did a really good job with that. Um, I do like getting to write my builds in Kotlin, but it does have the side effect of that. The, the state just being magic mm. and, very hard for me to debug. Um, so there are some things I re- do really like about Gradle. Yeah, I guess my thing is, as much as I've used it, I still don't, like, if I want to do a thing, I don't know where to start. I don't know how to, and I've read yeah. books on it, and I've read the docs, and I've, you know, worked with these files, and it's like, I can, if, if somebody's got it working, I can, look through it and go, Oh, I guess I sort of see what's going on, but not enough for me to go, Oh, I want to do this thing. Now here's what I do. Yeah. And it's, yeah, 
Build tools. Yeah. yeah, build tools. There still isn't one that is no. the silver bullet. No, and I think to figure that out, maybe we need a mathematician again. Somebody who says, you know, what is the essence of a build tool? Yeah. Uh, well, and then that language that you were just talking about. Um, unison. Unison. Yeah. See, there's they're, they're looking at it in a different way because totally you would think way. that that would be able to know. I mean, the language would know if something is out of date. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe that's the problem that we've just been looking at the problem the wrong way all this time or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I had a thought yes. uh, this week about build tools, which was why why do I have to like run my compiler when my code changes? Like, shouldn't a compiler understand a stream of file changes instead of just because the way that I think most compilers work today is you run the compiler, it gets a bunch of files and it does what it needs to. Why isn't there a compiler that instead can receive a stream of file changes? And so it can, the compiler can remain running. And whenever a file changes, it then knows, oh, okay, that file changed. Here's what I need to update, right? It's like fundamentally, we have not looked at compilers as file stream consumers. Because what happens in a compiler is you've got all these phases you have to come up with like this whole tree of information about you know the whole graph of of the syntax and types and all that kind of stuff right and so the so it has to compute all this information every single time it runs mm -hmm. but as a developer like i'm changing one file at a time and why can't the compiler run come up with that tree of information it gets it is then reading a stream of files and says, oh, I've already computed everything except for this one little piece. And I think that compilers have a lot of this mechanics for through caching is that they know what things they don't need to recompute now um, better than they used to. But it seems like a better architecture. Just receive, receive a stream. I would argue that IntelliJ is sort of that experience. I mean, because it has... I, I'm, this is so embarrassing because it wasn't until like last, I don't know, November or December that I started using the JetBrains products. Yeah. And I was just using, um, you know, my, my text editor before that. Yeah. And then I started using them and it was like, first I used IntelliJ because I, I yeah. thought, oh, well, I'll just, you know, I'll do this. I, or I, I was forced to or whatever yeah. for something. And then it was like, Oh my gosh, this is doing so much more for me than any of the other things. And then I immediately switched to PyCharm for Python because that also does things. Yeah. Oh, and it has a plugin that looks at your code and makes suggestions more than just yeah. what PyCharm does, but there's yeah. an additional plugin, which huh. I forget the name of. Nice. And it's like, oh, you could write your code better this way. I'm liking yeah. that. And, but my experience now with using, say, uh, IntelliJ with Kotlin is that that's how I find out whether things work. And then once that's working, then I run my normal build just yeah. to double check. Yeah. But it's, um, it is, I mean, I feel like it's very similar oh, yeah. to the experience that you're talking yeah. about. It's yeah. just constantly checking things. Yeah. 
I, I think you're right. I don't understand the internal architecture very well of IntelliJ, but, but I think that it is probably more similar to the model that I described of maintaining that state and, and then getting a stream of changes so it doesn't have to continually recompute all of that state. Mm-hmm. And it does seem to cache it like, and maybe this is one of the things that happened in 1.4. Cause I feel like I started noticing like if, cause I've got my whole book in a single project. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes it has to rebuild everything, but then a lot of times it doesn't, you know, and it's just boom, the, yeah. the answer is right there. And it doesn't yeah. cause so it's, it's caching all of that. It's, it's knowing what's already been built. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's just, I mean, such an amazing experience. <laughs> so much time wasted, not using that tool. Yeah. There's some interesting innovation happening in this particular space where you've got your compiler and it's, it's having to come up with all the information about your program. And then you've got your IDE that is also having to come up with all the information about your program. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just unify those two? And so this is the, um, uh, the language server protocol I think mm. it's called LSP. Mm-hmm. And so Scala SBT just uh, added support for for this language server protocol thing, and now tools are beginning to consume that that uh, information and provide it. So VS Code, I think, is the primary driver, and Microsoft are the primary drivers of doing of this protocol and doing this. And so I think they've been doing a lot around TypeScript in VS Code. But the really interesting part of this is that now you have essentially one your compiler is providing one um, one way to access all the information it needs about the syntax uh, and the types. So it doesn't have to program. be reinvented in every tool. That's right. Exactly. Right, which yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's, I, I'm excited to see the innovation happening in, in that particular space. Now, IntelliJ has not gone this direction because they've got so much investment into the indexing protocol that right. they, they've already invented. Uh, and, and it's really efficient. It's been, you know, created around, yeah, like, I don't know, 100 millisecond responsiveness, getting an answer from the index. And um, so so I can see why they haven't haven't necessarily embraced Just it. Just jumped because it's going to be a huge yeah. thing for them. Yeah. You know? yeah. But eventually, probably they'll, they'll move over, I suspect. And as I think more compilers yeah. implement the protocol, like mm-hmm. I, I don't know what Kotlin's plans are for implementing the protocol and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's interesting innovation happening in that space. Yes, it is. Are we, uh, I think we're we're, at an hour or so. Yeah. Yeah. So that seems to be what, what we do is an hour. That's it. Yeah. And then we're out of thoughts and we're out of, well, no, we have many more (laughs) thoughts, but, uh, we need to save them for, for the, for our next time. That's right. Yes. Until next time. Until next time.